As I mentioned earlier, I think that there is an awful lot to be smug about living in Michigan. I love living here. It's a beautiful place. We have so many wonderful features, especially it never getting to 120 degrees in the shade. I like that one. I like that uh, it snows. We've got four seasons. But you know the thing that I love really seeing bragged about in a very pious and, you know, kind of hometown uh, pride way is the Great Lakes. Four out of five Great Lakes prefer Michigan. That's just a fact. And, you know, we have literally the greatest of lakes, Lake Superior. It's right there in the name. It's the greatest lake. It is superior to all other lakes. It is the largest freshwater lake at 32,000 square miles and change. It contains 10% of the world's fresh surface water. Can you imagine that? 10%. It's a quarter of a mile deep and more at its deepest point. And would you believe if I told you that the water, if we could take it out of Lake Superior, would cover all of the United States in one foot deep of water? Would you believe if I told you it would cover all of North America? What if I told you it would cover all of North and South America with a foot deep of water? That is actually a fact. And when you look at the globe and you see this, this this little thing, it's pretty amazing that it contains that much precious, pristine, cool water, sometimes really cold water, but wonderful, wonderful resource for us. And I, I think if, if I were to live right on Lake Superior in some kind of cabin or something, I haven't bought one, Aaron, don't get excited. But if we, if we were to, and you got your water from the lake, and, and you got your drinking water, you filtered it from the lake, you got all the water you needed to use, would you have a backup plan for if that should run out? If the literally, not exaggerating, three quadrillion gallons of water contained in Lake Superior were to run dry and you were to use it all up, where, you, where else are you going to get it? What's your backup? You wouldn't have a backup plan. You would know that you were on the, the, the very cusp of an inexhaustible resource. And that is exactly what Paul wants to tell us about God about our Lord. When we are looking here in Ephesians chapter 1, he is going to describe for us why we should be people of hope, why we should not run short on hope, and why we should never doubt that our God is an immeasurably powerful God. We've been in Ephesians for some weeks now, and what we've seen so far is basically one sentence Remember that that sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, it's more than 200 words long, the longest in the whole New Testament, spans a dozen verses, and it's this outburst of praise that just comes out of Paul. It almost seems to me like it wasn't planned. He just starts praising God, and now he's finally segueing into actually addressing the recipients of the letter. And as he addresses them, the first thing he wants them to know is that he prays for them regularly. He prays for them regularly often. And he doesn't just say, by the way, I've been praying for you. No, he gives them a very exhaustive catalog of all the things he has been praying, what he has said to God about them and on their behalf. And it begins with these words, for this reason. And remember, anytime you start reading a passage of scripture and it points you back like that, therefore, or as such, or for this reason, you have to ask yourself, for what reason? Well, the reason is all the stuff we've been covering that God has been at work here, that they have been elected by the Father from before the foundation of the earth, 
that the Ephesian saints have been redeemed by the blood of the Son, that they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now he is praying for them because he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Think of that. He has been praying continually for them. He's just gotten through this this long exposition about how God's will has been at work according to his, his good pleasure, according to his plan and purpose, doing everything by his sovereign will. And for some people, that becomes an excuse not to pray. God will do what God will do. For St. Paul, this becomes a compulsion to pray continually and with absolute confidence. I feel the need to point out that this whole passage here, verses 15 to 23, also just one sentence, one very complex sentence. This one's only got 170 words, so. But it's a, it's a very long one, and like most Pauline sentences, it contains side trips and bridges and tunnels and, you know, twisty slides. But at the end of the day, it plants us right back in a position of Christ being exalted. It seems like no matter what Paul starts talking about, he winds up talking about Jesus as Lord. Jesus, the Father of, uh, uh, the Father of God, having been glorified in him, now victorious and Jesus now worthy of our praise. In verse 16, he tells them, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I do not cease. When I pray, I pray for you. This is impressive to me. I made it into the Bible, so it can't be like a lie. And, and I got a, actually got a message just yesterday from uh, one of our uh, Burmese friends. Uh, Burmese church used to meet here in our sanctuary for nine years. It's been a couple years since they, they moved out. And they just dropped a note and said, I, I pray for you, quote, not often, but occasionally you're in my prayers. And I thought, I appreciate the honesty. I believe you. I think we often exaggerate, or another word for that is sort of deceive with this gap between how much we tell each other we're praying for them or promise I'll be praying for you and how much we actually pray. And so it's refreshing when someone says, not often, but occasionally you're in my prayers. But Paul, he is praying for these people constantly. Now, I, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't pray often for the Burmese church. Occasionally they're in my prayers. We have now the Swahili church. I pray for the Nepali congregation. I pray for all of you. I pray for all that's going on. And yet, St. Paul, if he's only praying for those churches he planted, has at least 14, and he's remembering them continually. It seems that Paul is praying a lot more than Zach. And it isn't stopping him from being far more productive than I am. This challenges me to be praying more continually and more unceasingly. First thing he does is he thanks God. He thanks God for their faith and their love. And this is a big deal. I mean, that their faith is holding firm. These are people living in a hostile land where Christians are at best marginalized and at worst outright persecuted for their faith. And yet they are not breaking. These are primarily Gentiles. They've got a heathen background. They live right in the, the front yard of the temple of Artemis and live in this town known for sorcery and, and magic and the occult and all of these things. And yet they haven't fallen back into their old paganism, and he thanks God for that. But they don't just have faith, they have love, and faith will always overflow into love. In Galatians chapter 5, we see St. Paul uh, addressing a similar issue that we'll see him addressing in Ephesians, which is a division between Jews and Gentiles within the church. 
And here he says in Galatians 5 to the church, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he says, I hear that your faith is holding fast, that you're showing love to one another, to all the saints. And notice he doesn't praise them for that. He says, I thank God for it. Sounds like they're doing pretty well. But something is missing here. Faith and love. Faith and love. Anybody? Faith, hope, and love, right? They're missing the hope. They're struggling with the hope. And I'm not just inferring that from him saying faith and love. We see that as he continues to pray for them. It's something that, that is eluding them at the moment. And the church is always struggling with some aspect of the Christian walk. There's never a time when everyone's got everything fully under control. Right now, I think people, if you ask them, faith, hope, love, what are we struggling with? A lot of people would say love because there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of anger. I think the main problem right now is hope. I think a lot of the, the absolute pervasive hopelessness is why people are turning on each other and withdrawing to their corners and pointing fingers at one another and acting in ways that are unbecoming, especially of those in the church. And and Paul is going to pray that God would fill up what is missing in them. And that ought to be our prayer for ourselves and for one another as well. And it starts out like this. I've been praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, in the ESV, spirit is uppercase S. In the NIV, it was lowercase s, implying that we're not talking about the Holy Spirit, but rather some uh, kind of attitude of wisdom. I believe the ESV is right here. We see here the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in one verse. And in that, this is the kind of working of God that Paul knows is going to bear fruit, is going to bring them out of their lack of, of hope. And it starts with wisdom, knowledge, and revelation. Psalm uh, 110 tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now they've gotten that. They've feared God. They now believe in Him. They revere Him. That's the beginning of wisdom. But Paul wants them to gain more wisdom. They've had the revelation of the gospel. The gospel is good news that comes from without, and we accept it from without, and we are saved by what happened outside of us on Calvary. They've done that. And yet they haven't gone, apparently, as far as St. Paul would like to see them go. And this is an attitude that, that continues to kind of pervade the American church, and it perplexes me. The idea that a little bit is all you want to know. In fact, if you know more, the more you know, the less you'll love God, or the, the less you'll be amazed by Him. Really? Are we talking about the same God? There's a hymn that I truly do not like. So sorry if you do, but it says, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. You know that one? The, the, that's enough. That's the bare minimum. And here I am with the bare minimum. And, and people don't really sing that hymn all that much. But we have a lot of current songs that have the same sort of attitude. Doctrine divides. Let's not learn about this God. Let's not get closer to Him. I just want to get saved. I want to know that Jesus died, that He died for me. Now I'm in, and now I can spend eternity with a God that I hopefully will like. Have you ever gotten into a roommate situation with someone you didn't know all that well and said, oh, I've made a huge mistake. I wish I'd interviewed more people. 
gotten to know this person better before we signed a one-year lease together. Now, how about make that an eternity lease? You want to know your God before you spend eternity with him? Know him better? That's what he prays, that you would know him better. In John 17, we're told this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so Jesus came to reveal to us who God is, the exact representation of God, according to the author of Hebrews. And now we want that revelation to be taken even further so they'll know more and more. They'll know him better and better. He prays for them to have knowledge, and that's a loaded term in the New Testament. This Greek word epignosis, it doesn't mean just knowing about, but knowing, like knowing in a relational way. And you know, you can know about someone and not know them, but you can't know them and not know about them. Do you get that? You, you can't know them without knowing about them, but you can know about them. I know about Michael Bolton, but I don't know him. Actually, no, I just picked a name out of thin air. I don't know a lot about Michael Bolton. Sorry. That's... But, but look at Matthew 25, when you have the sheep and the goats, and Jesus turns to those on his left, and he says to them, Depart from me, you cursed ones, for I never knew you. He knew about them. He knew enough about them to sit as their judge. They knew about him. They knew enough about him to fake being his followers and even do you know, miracles in his name. But they did not know each other, meaning they did not have any kind of personal relationship with one another. This is an experiential kind of love. We experience God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love. We experience his power in our lives. And knowing God in this kind of way, in the biblical sense, happens with all of ourselves with our mind, with our emotions, with our will. It's no mistake, I think, that the word know is used both in the Old and New Testament in a sense of even a marriage relationship. David went and knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. The closest kind of intimate, open relationship, right? The openness between the two of them and the, the, the love that, that one sees, that kind of intimacy it is a, a core value of Christianity. You cannot know about God but not know him and call yourself a Christian with any kind of integrity. In fact, Jesus talks about the husband and wife coming together. The, the, they leave their parents and the two cleave to each other and they become one flesh. In a similar way, we don't become God, certainly, but we are united with him so closely that in this passage and many others, he is called the head and we're called the body. I don't know about you, but my head and my body are rarely ever apart. These are saints that he's talking to, though. They know, they know him. They're not going to be told, I never knew you, depart from me. But he's worried that they don't know him well enough. They need to know him better, that they've stagnated, plateaued in their deepening relationship with their Savior. That they might walk awkwardly up to him in glory and say, uh, we've met, I'm, you know, uh, Lucius. Rather, he wants them to know him better and better and better. And don't you want to know your Savior better and better and better so that you know him better than you know yourself because he certainly knows you better than you know yourself. Then he moves on to this. He's praying that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. The, the eyes of the heart of man are by default closed and closed tight. 
to anything uh, related to the gospel. There, there is hardness of heart. In fact, we read in the scriptures about God taking away a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. The heart of stone cannot open its eyes. The world is obsessed with whether or not we're open-minded. Being open-minded does you no good whatsoever if the eyes of your heart are closed, if you are spiritually blind and do not have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, these people have been saved, and in that moment, the eyes of their heart were opened, and they could see the truth of the gospel. Okay, they're safe. They're in. But Paul says, I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened. I want more and more light to shine So that you have more wisdom, more knowledge, more revelation. I want you to be enlightened. The world thinks that they're enlightened. The more worldly they get, the more enlightened they are. And yet in chapter 4 of this same book, Paul's going to tell us they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Well, your hearts, saints, should not be hard. The eyes of your hearts should not be closed, they should be open, and they should be walking more and more into the light to see and perceive and discern more spiritual truths and spiritual realities. And he gives us a few examples of the sorts of things he wants them to see. And there's three of them. There's so many three-in-ones here. I'm just going to stop pointing them out. You'll see them. They, They keep coming up. But there's three things that he wants them to see with the eyes of their heart as the Spirit illuminates them. And it starts here with that you would know the hope to which he has called you, or literally the hope of his calling. Now his calling, we've been told, his calling and electing, goes all the way back to before the foundation of the earth. That goes way, way, way back. The hope, our Christian hope, is consummated at the return of Christ. That's in the future. This is the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end kind of situation, where we see that Jesus is Lord from the very, very beginning to the very, very end in all throughout time. That he is Lord indeed. And that should fill us with hope in the moment. I mean, we were once hopeless like the world was, and now we have hope in Jesus Christ. And yet, there are times when, like the Ephesians, you do a self-assessment or you get a letter in the mail from Tychicus. That's who brought the letter. And it says, I've been thanking God for your faith and for your love, and I've been praying for your hope because hopelessness is descending into the church. It's, it's a cloud that's over all the people, and it's having an effect on everyone. I've spoken to a number of people over the last month who've told me, Pastor, I am struggling with a hopelessness. It's really starting to, to overtake me. Fight hopelessness. Fight it like you would fight a bear trying to devour your family if you had a flamethrower. You cannot give in. It's easy to give in. It will lull you. Fight it. Hebrews 6 verse 9 tells us that hope is the anchor for the soul. If we don't have the anchor, we are tossed about. In fact, in that same chapter of Ephesians, coming right up, he's going to tell them, I want you to be mature, that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. How do you avoid being tossed to and fro? You have the anchor. it's, It's not safe to go out without the anchor. And when we talk about hope, we don't mean human hope. When we say hope from a human perspective, we mean something that's uncertain. Like there's tears of this. Like there's wish 
That's for something you're pretty sure isn't going to happen, but you wish it would. Then there's hope. Eh, it's possible. And, you know, hope springs eternal. Maybe someday. And then there's, ooh, this might actually happen. And way, way, way above is actual certainty. That's not the picture Scripture gives us as believers of hope. Hope is rooted and grounded in the certainty that Jesus is Lord, that He is the, the Son of God and God the Son, that He died on a cross and walked out of an empty tomb. There is a, a sense of certain hope, of tangibility here. What's more tangible than an anchor? And He wants them to know this hope. Secondly, He wants them to know the riches of the inheritance now, there's so much ink spilled about this, whether he's talking about them as God's inheritance or God as their inheritance. We've already gone and looked at a lot of this stuff last time and saw how we're God's possession. He is our, he is our inheritance. The point here being, this also is future. He's, he's pointing ahead, saying, I want you to know about these things that are coming, but the question remains for people who are feeling hopeless, what have you got for me in the now? Because now is when I'm struggling. And the answer comes in verse 19. Number three, that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And the apostle starts doing something here that's rather Hebraic, which is to stack up phrases and words that mean the same basic thing in a parallel form to emphasize and give more credence to his point. And so when you start reading about the immeasurable greatness of his power and the working of his great might and saying, well, what's the difference? Eh, not really much. He's trying to stack these things up. He's going to use between verses 19 and 23, seven words for power or strength. Seven different words. Hey, the perfect number. God's power is perfect. And that should fuel our hope. And having stacked these things up, he then starts unpacking that last, that third prayer request. For them, that they would know God's mighty power, that they would know the working of his strength. And as he's unpacking it, he slips back into praising God yet again, lifting up the glory of God. It's like if you ever drilled a hole in just the wrong spot, and you needed to drill one right next to it, and every time you try, the drill bit slips back into the first hole. Oh, that's maddening. But it's the same way with our minds. You build these pathways. And it's easy just to slip back into those. Paul's neural pathways take him to the foot of the cross, where he praises Jesus by default. Where do yours take you? Mine often take me to frustration and, oh, woe is me, rather than to the, the point of saying, God, you are great and full of glory. He goes back to God's glory without even a thought. I mean, it's automatic. He told us that, that as God was working out his plan from eternity past, it was to the praise of his glorious grace. Then he tells the saints that they need to live lives to the praise of his glory. And then here he doesn't just call God the father of Jesus. He also calls him the father of glory. Whatever we say about Jesus, about his person, about his people, about his, his purpose and plan, it's all saturated in glory. And that is why throughout Scripture, whenever someone encounters this God... Their automatic response is that they marvel. More often than not in the New Testament, that's the word used. They marvel at who he is. And when they learn more about him and get to know him better, they don't marvel less. When Jesus appeared to John at Patmos, 
John, who was such a close friend of his that he lay his head against Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. You know how comfortable dudes have to be with each other to do something like that? And yet, when Jesus appeared to him at Patmos, John fell on his face in worship. You know, there are some things you learn more about them or get to know them better, and it demystifies them, and you go, eh, not that big a deal. When I was learning guitar, I remember, Ryan, you'll relate to this, I remember saying, oh, I, I can print out, you get online, then you find the, the page with all the guitar tabs and chords, and then your printer's like, rang, 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 and 25 minutes later, you're like, oh, a song. And I remember I, I printed out some songs by U2. Remember U2? Their, their guitarist, The Edge, uh, that's his name, The Edge, he, he, he was, in my mind, just a master. I thought, I want to play like that. It sounds like he's just continually, he never stops, you know, just, just playing these amazing riffs. And then I looked at the music, and I realized all that was going on is he was just kind of plucking through some basic things, and he had a, a pedal that would repeat it back and repeat it back and repeat it back and repeat it back. And as soon as I knew that, I couldn't even listen to the band anymore. I was like, you're a bunch of fakers, and you're pretending to be great at guitar, The Edge. It demystified it. And yet, you know, there's something like the human body or outer space, the universe. The more I learn about, the more I learn about the human body, I've been reading about stuff with, I was reading about T-cells this past week because of coronavirus and all this stuff. I was blown away. Our bodies are amazing. They're not as amazing as God. The more we learn about him, the more we ought to marvel. And as Paul goes about again glorifying God, he is now expounding on this great might and the mighty works that he wants them to reflect upon and see with the eyes of their heart. There's three of them. And and we see that they start in verse 20 with the resurrection. What did he work in Christ? Well, he raised him from the dead. That's a big deal. The great equalizer, death, could not equalize Jesus because he has no equal. He had gone into Sheol, which is what in the Old Testament they called the grave or the place of the dead. Answers to Hades in the Greek. He'd gone to Hades. He was the, the lowest state you could be. And God raised him up, not just to life, but to the highest station. As, as Paul goes next, to the highest station one can have. In heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Surrounded by cherubim and seraphim, angels and archangels who, who throw their crowns at his feet and fall down before him and continually sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. From there to here, how could we possibly give in to hopelessness in light of that? It makes sense that the world is hopeless. They have nothing to hang on to. I, I read recently an article from the New Scientist trying to answer some of the big philosophical questions of the world from a purely atomistic scientific point of view. They knew that it was, it was going to come off badly, but it was just a, a fun exercise. And yet the fun got kind of dark when the question was asked, what is the meaning of life? Here's the answer. The harsh answer is, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. Against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Whoa. Yeah, okay. Be hopeless if you don't have an anchor of faith in Christ Jesus. But we do. 
And yet the enemy is always going to try to separate you from hope because that can paralyze you and neutralize you and take you out of the game for a while. It's going to try to leverage, you know, we have three, hey, there it is, enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the devil will he'll leverage the world and say, look around, there is nothing but pestilence and anger and rage and sorrow and injustice and all this. Just give up. What's the point? And then he'll leverage the flesh and say, don't you just feel tired? Don't, don't you just get tired of, of fighting against your basis instincts? Just give in to, to whatever it is that comes up to the surface. But we have to recognize that the power that's at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's Paul's point here. That's what he wants them to see with the eyes of their faith. You know, I think about atomic energy, right? You split the atom and you have nearly unlimited energy, at least compared to just about any other kind of energy we have. You can, you can make a bomb that can blow up an entire city, and we're afraid of atomic energy for that reason. But then others say, well, we can, we can harness it, and we can use it for the good of mankind. And even they're kind of saying, but we got to be careful because we can't really fully control this thing. It's the same energy. Well, the fact is that it is the same power, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that, that breathed life into Adam at the beginning and gave him life and made him a human soul that takes us from our old sin. The, the dry bones that we were puts flesh on us, breathes the breath of life, and makes us a new creation. Al Mohler recently talked about a survey that was done uh, on his, his uh, podcast in which they went door to door and asked people, do you believe in God? They found a, quite a few people still say they believe in God, but then they probed deeper, what kind of God do you believe in? A God that does miracles, a God that's in charge, and they found that people didn't believe in a God that actually intervened in human affairs much at all. It was almost like back to the deism of the 18th century. And one guy said, hey, I just believe in an ordinary God. Ordinary in the words of St. Anselm, that is weak sauce. Who wants an ordinary God? What would be the point of such a thing? So know the power that he was raised from the dead and alive forevermore, by the way, according to Jesus himself in Revelation. Know also that he seated him at the right hand of the Father. So he didn't just raise him from the dead but he ascended him into heaven. He, he seated him at his own right hand, meaning he's on a throne, meaning he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, not just in this age, but in the age to come. He doesn't just live forevermore, he reigns forevermore. And in the words of Paul, therefore, he is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What is the difference between rule, authority, power, and dominion? Not much. He's stacking up these terms again. The Venn diagram is, is clustered pretty tight. I think it's, it's significant, though. There are seven words, the number of completion. For power, there are four that he is above. Four is the number of creation. The creator is always above the creation. And all the power of earth and hell is a joke compared to the power of our Savior. This is where he goes next. The third uh, thing that he wants us to see with our hearts, because our eyes of our hearts are opened and they're illumined by the Holy Spirit, is the absolute victory and sovereign rule of Jesus. He has seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and put all things under his feet. 
He, he, he's not just talking here when he speaks of, of these rulers and authorities and power and dominion of human rulers like Caesar and his successors who to this day foolishly think they can defeat the church with force or social pressure or military might. He's also talking about the supernatural powers behind those things, those humans and human institutions. He's going to bring up these principalities and powers, these, these demonic figures again and again in Ephesians, here in chapter 1, then in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 6, and it gets clearer and clearer that this is what he's talking about, something supernatural. And, and casual Christians hear you talking about this stuff, and they start to say, eh, that's a little weird. Yeah, okay, that's a little weird. So? I, I mean, the, the whole point of the gospel, the core of it, is ha adopting and accepting a world view, a view of the world that is foolishness to the world, and recognizing that the world's wisdom is actually foolishness itself. There are so many Christians who have believed, or at least self-professed Christians, who live trying to salvage as much of the world's wisdom, which is foolishness, as they possibly can, and then hold on to the bare minimum of the weird stuff. It's the weird stuff that saves you. A naked, homeless Jewish man nailed to a tree. That's your stuff. That's weird. The world thinks it's foolish. Embrace that. We have to recognize that, that when we try to skirt around with some lowest common denominator, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not some fanatic Christianity, it cannot square with Jesus' demand that if you're going to follow me, take up your cross every day and deny yourself. It can't square with Paul's words, even in these last couple verses of this passage. Look at these words that pop up. All, all things, all, fullness, fills, all. There's no room for half measures in following Jesus. And this was a daily reality for the Ephesians. These powers and principalities, they were, they were absolutely present. They were, they were, no, they were no, nothing to be debated, nothing to be talked about in purely academic ways. They were there. When he talks about being above every name that is named, he's referencing how in, in spells and incantations and, and this kind of magic scrolls, which, by the way, were called Ephesian scrolls because most of them came from Ephesus, they would name many, many names and try and pile up the names of deities in order to get something done supernaturally. And this was so prevalent that in Acts 19, remember, we read that even the Jews of that city were getting sucked in to this kind of occult activity, wanting to harness that power of the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a dark and prominent and prevalent cloud of occult power and, and darkness over this city. And, and here they were in the midst of this, surrounded by it. It's normalized. This temple worship was horrendous. It was sacramentalized immorality, ritual sexual abuse going on right there. And here they are trying to follow Jesus and be a light in that darkness. And it's in chapter 6 of Ephesians when Paul tells them, you don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, rulers, in high places. And that can be scary. But the fact that their places are high places means they can be measured. Measured to high. God's might, however, he tells us here, is immeasurable. Immeasurable. Im absolutely infinite and beyond our ability to even grasp. And that makes all the difference. It could be overwhelming. 
to learn that the reason that there's such a, a darkness in your city if you lived in Ephesus was because there are high demonic powers at work that could lead to a sense of hopelessness or reinforce one. But he says, zoom out a little bit and you'll see that the location of those high powers are under the feet of Jesus himself. Here he is referencing Psalm 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I may be the only guy here who remembers the Drew Carey show from the 90s. But you remember the, the evil lady that owned the store? She would, she would punish her employees by saying, footstool, and they'd have to get on all fours, and she'd put her feet on their back. And it was goofy, but that was done in antiquity, not as some screwball gag, but as an actual show of domination over your enemy. And it was a very potent visual for people to walk away with. And that's the visual that he wants us to have when we look at the darkness that's coming against us and remember that all the greatest powers of darkness are under the feet of Jesus. His enemies will be a footstool for him. That means that the, the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians is under the feet of Jesus. Every wicked spirit is under the feet of Jesus. Your jealousy, your discontentedness is under the feet of Jesus. Pornography is under the feet of Jesus. Bondage to drugs and alcohol is under the feet of Jesus. The spirit of fear is under the feet of Jesus. Hopelessness is under the feet of Jesus. He is above all things. Now, this is perhaps a bit of a tangent for Paul that he's on, but it is clear, crystal clear, that what he wants for these people is that they would know God more deeply, more completely, more intimately. That they would know and appreciate who he is and what he has done for them, and that in doing so, they would rediscover their hope. And what does that look like to know God better and better? Well, it doesn't look like becoming over-familiar with him. So he becomes your imaginary friend, and certainly he's in favor of everything I say and do and thinks I'm awesome. Rather, it means having a more robust view of his glory. It means having a higher reverence for his name, and as a result, having a deepening faith, hope, and love. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Don't miss that. In the NIV, for the church. In the ESV, to the church. He, he's, all things are under his feet. God has put all things under his feet for us, for the church. There are some traditions in which the church is viewed as a parenthesis, a temporary stopgap in God's plan. What nonsense. We see here that the church is central to his plan. Back in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? All things are under Christ, and it's for the benefit of the church. His body. We are his body. And he has put all things under his feet for us. And so, yes, knowing God is it's personal, it is experiential, but it's also communal. It is best done together. It is not best done uh, off isolated and private and without anyone else to speak into your life and to prophetically tell you what you need to hear in a given moment, to read God's Word together with you so that you can both, being filled with the Spirit, enjoy God's uh, opening of your eyes and illuminating of His Word. 
This, this final little snippet, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, is another one that's kind of hard to understand. It's awkwardly worded, not only in the Greek, but in most translations. And this is the rare, rare occasion where the message, you know the message, the kind of paraphrase, helps shine light on the meaning here. It happens once in a while. In, in, in the message we read this, the church is Christ's body by which he fills everything with his presence. Just like in Colossians 1, we read that in Christ is all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Just like Jesus came as the fullness of God in our presence, we are now the fullness of Christ out in the world, in the midst of the darkness. And no, we don't stand as a perfect, exact representation of Christ, as Christ was a perfect, exact representation of God the Father, but we are the only light that will shine in the darkness. There's no plan B. And what we see here is that God has formed the church, and Paul is saying, let him fill the church. And as the fullness of the church, bring the gospel out and bring hope into the hopelessness. It reminds me an awful lot of Genesis 1 in which we have the six days of creation. The first three, God forms, right? He forms light. He forms the expanse so there's sky and waters. He forms dry land. And then the next three days, he fills. All right, sun, moon, all right, birds. We got teeming with fish, and now we bring on animals on the dry land. He forms us as his church, his body. He fills us. And now we are to be filled, and we are to be his body, his hands and feet. What does this look like? Well, we, together when we have communion, we, we pray this prayer, and, and uh, I read a series of questions and you answer them. It's a communal confession of sins. And I always ask, do you intend to le- live a holy life even as God has made you holy? I love that question. Even as God has made you holy. I, I answer the questions too, by the way. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not standing above you. I'm, I'm here with you in the midst of it. And I say, wow, God made me holy. I need to live holy. I need to be what God has already made me to be. And that's what we're talking about here in this fullness stuff. He wants this church in Ephesus to become what they already are in Christ. To know more and more, better and better, the God that they already know in Christ. To see more clearly with the eyes of their heart which have been opened and are now illuminated by the Holy Spirit. This is his prayer. You know, this challenges me in my prayers. You know in Ephesus there were a lot of urgent things to pray for. There were sick people. There was persecution. There was the moment of the day. You know the Stephen Covey grid. You've got important, not important, urgent, not urgent. And you're supposed to try and get away from that important, urgent thing where you're always stuck there. Well, in our prayers, it's good that we pray widely. It's good that we say, okay, everybody, we're going to pray for Maud's ex-husband's dog groomer's babysitter's you know, uncle who's got to have his knee operated on. It's good that we pray widely, but we need to also pray deeply because in the deep, that is where we find the hope. These are almost every prayer we find in the Scriptures. Read through the Psalms. Very, very end, you finally have, Lord, deliver me. But before that, verses and verses and verses and verses of God's glory stacked on top of each other. Or in Acts 4, they're in need of God's help, and yet what they do is rehearse the whole story of what God has done and how faithful he has been. Praying God's word back to him is always a good idea, like we saw in the school uh, of prayer 
in Christ with a school of prayer, and we studied that a couple of years ago. So if you're doing that this week, what you'd want to pray for is knowledge and wisdom and revelation and ultimately for hope. That we do not find ourselves as the church in America in a post-hope situation. Like they found themselves on Easter morning as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, or I suppose it was Easter afternoon or evening. They, they said to each other, we had hoped that he was the Christ. We had hoped. But we know what they didn't know. That Jesus had indeed walked out of the grave that morning, and that he was actually walking with them now, and we know that. How then can we find ourselves in a post-hope situation? If Christ is the head, and we are the body, and all things have been placed under Christ's feet, I'm not great at math, but it seems to me like all things will be placed under our feet. And that is borne out in Romans 16, when Paul says to the church in Rome that soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Have hope. It might seem dark, and there's a reason. It's not just in your head. There are principalities at work. There is spiritual darkness in high places, but our God is in infinitely higher places. And under his feet are all of these things that would like to steal your hope. Do not let it happen. Marvel at who God is and what he has done. Seek him. Get to know him better and better. And as you do, you will find that added to your faith and your love will be hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, timely passage for us today. We pray that you would be with us as we seek to follow you more closely, to know you more deeply. That, Lord, we would not be hopeless people this week. We know that it is so easy to slowly give in to hopelessness, and we pray that we would not that we would resist it, that we would flee to the cross, that our automatic pathway like Paul's would be to your glory and the hope that we see there. In your holy name we pray. Amen.